Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 80, Hellenistic Literature, Menander and New Comedy. not be far-fetched to suggest that in most samples of class curriculums that incorporate Greek and Roman literature, you will find almost no examples of works dating to the Hellenistic period. With the exception of Homer, the vast majority of authors can be traced to the heyday of classical Athens, those such as Aristophanes, Sophocles, and Euripides. On the other end, you may find the writers of imperial Rome, like Virgil and Ovid. Yet the 300-year gap that stretches between them is almost entirely skipped over, despite the rather large output of material to come out of places like Alexandria or Antioch. In part, this is due to the limited survival of many of these texts. Yet those we have reveal much about the radically changing tastes and styles that marked the expansion of the Greek world following Alexander's death. Nearly 40 episodes ago, I did a survey of the Hellenistic philosophical schools, and I will do the same for the period's literary movements and authors. Today, we will begin our series by discussing the works of the playwright Menander, the father of new comedy. For this episode, I have relied extensively on the translation of Menander's works by Maurice Balm, published by Oxford World's Classics, which conveniently compiles all the surviving plays and fragments into a single volume. Now, by no means was humor invented by the ancient Greeks, Fart jokes and observational comedy have been recorded in the text of Babylonians and Egyptians, and the act of finding something funny is probably rooted in some sort of evolutionary behavior of our earliest ancestors. The Greeks themselves are divided on when or who we can attribute the first comedic plays, but Aristotle makes a good point, saying that the earliest example was probably not recorded simply because the genre was not taken seriously. When we speak of comedy, the act of putting on public performances structured around humorous stories or themes, we must turn to 5th century Athens, which would remain the epicenter throughout the entirety of Greco-Roman comedy. With regards to classical antiquity, we can divide three periods of comedy, old, middle, and new. These categories were coined by the Greeks and Romans themselves, and the premier writer of old comedy was the Athenian playwright Aristophanes, who was active in the late 5th century. He was not the first of the old comedy movement, and arguably came onto the scene rather late in its life cycle. However, with such famous works as The Frogs, Lysistrata, The Clouds, and about eight other surviving plays under his belt, Aristophanes secured his reputation as a literary powerhouse who painted teasing, and sometimes caustic, portraits of political life and figures during the Peloponnesian War. Following his retirement, we have middle comedy, a term used by modern scholars to denote a rather silent period, stretching from the early to mid-4th century. Unlike old and new, there are no famous plays of middle comedy that had survived to the present, but we at least know that there was some degree of activity throughout the Greek-speaking world, with a few names appearing here and there. By the time of Alexander the Great and the early Hellenistic period, we have come to the third and final movement, that of new comedy. Once again, we find ourselves in Athens, which in spite of its decline in power and prestige when compared to newer cities like Alexandria and Egypt, it was the place to be for any respectable playwright looking to make a name for themselves. It may be no coincidence that the single most important writer of the new comedy movement was an Athenian as well, a man named Menander. Born in roughly 342-341 BC, 
Menander appears to have been from a reasonably well-off family and given a good education, perhaps being tutored under the famed middle-comedy playwright Alexis, and he is said to have studied at the Lycaeum under Theophrastus. His talent made its first appearance when he put on a play at the age of 20 in 322, still considered only a youth in the eyes of Athenian law. Though gifted, Plutarch indicates that his skills greatly improved as he got older, with roughly 108 or 109 plays under his belt by his early 50s. Only about eight of these plays actually won any prizes. Accusations of bribery were thrown by later authors against the voting panels for their apparent lack of judgment, but his reputation would spread throughout the Mediterranean. Both Ptolemaic and Antipatric kings sent embassies to visit Menander, hoping that they would be able to convince him to come to their courts, but the playwright declined these offers and chose to remain in his mother's city. A more satirical tale in the fables of Phaedrus suggests a run-in with the tyrant Demetrius of Phalerum, who reportedly insulted Menander's masculinity for wearing perfume and flowing garments, only to quickly change his tune when he discovered the identity of his guest. At the age of 52, fate would take Menander's life at the peak of his career, when he is said to have drowned while swimming in the waters of the Piraeus. In spite of a rather early demise, Menander by this point had secured his place in the literary canon of the Greek-speaking world. We will return to the legacy of Menander later on in this episode, but why don't we delve further into understanding what differentiated new from old or middle comedy, and how comedy was to be seen in the Hellenistic period. My name is Meredith. And my name is Dustin. And we're the host of... The Alexander Standard. <clears throat> That's better. Inspired by Rex Factor Podcast, we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great, from Perdiccas... To Cleopatra the Seventh. After Alexander the Great died, really hit the fan. Seriously, the Hellenistic world was a crazy place. And we've got some crazy stories to tell you. So please come check out our show, The Alexander Standard. How were the plays of Menander performed? Plays were generally made available for the public on festival days. The two main festivals in Athens were the Lanaia and Dionysia, where literary contests would be held to judge the newest works of the playwrights. Outside of Athens, it is presumed that these would take place during special occasions relevant to the city in which they were hosted in. Greek theaters possessed a standard design, with a center stage in front of a gradually radiating semicircle of stone seats, often built into the hillsides. On the stage, there were often constructed sets with painted curtains and other props used to accentuate the scenes of the play. With regards to the performance itself, actors would be assigned to their roles. Rather than having a unique actor for each character, only a handful of people were involved, and each scene is constructed to have only three characters present at a single time, allowing them to be economical with the number of cast members and prevent confusion in the audience. To distinguish the characters and disguise the actors, each role would be assigned a large mask with a wide opening for the mouth that allowed the speaker to better project their voice. In contrast to the more realistic masks used for tragedies, comedy masks were typically hyper-exaggerated with often grotesque features and contorted facial expressions. Women were not permitted as actors, so all roles would have been played by male actors, who would wear feminine clothes, wigs, and masks, and pitch their voices accordingly. One notable change with Menandrian comedies was the reduced presence of the chorus. For playwrights like Euripides and Aeschylus, 
The chorus was a group of vocalists who functioned akin to a narrator of sorts, providing input on a character's psychology or commentary on the situation at hand. Normally, they would be isolated to a separate part of the stage, the orchestra, and tended to not interact with any of the actors. But Menander uses them as an in-universe narrative device to mark a transition between scenes or acts. For example, the arrival of a group of dancing Dionysiac revelers prompts the characters on the stage to leave and avoid the chaos, thus allowing for a change in costumes or set dressing for the next act while the performers dance or sing. With regards to the structure and format of the plays, Menander's comedies followed a routine pattern. Each play is five acts in length, preceded by a prologue which often has some sort of divine character setting the stage. As mentioned before, each act was divided by the arrival of the chorus, which is often simply marked on manuscripts as chorus, reflecting their diminished importance. Comedies are effectively written as an inverse to tragedies. In Aristotelian terms, tragedy is marked by a turn of good fortune to bad fortune by the end of the story due to the mistakes made by the protagonists. Comedy, on the other hand, uses a twist of fate to turn a bad situation into a good one for our protagonist, often revealing truths that aid in their efforts to ultimately achieve their goals. Such twists and climaxes usually occur during the fourth act, and the fifth is a sort of epilogue that establishes the consequences of the twist, the proverbial happily ever after. Let us use one of Menander's plays as a case study, the Discolos. Translated variously as the bad-tempered man or the misanthrope, the Discolos claimed first prize after being published for the Lanaya Festival of 316, and it is the only comedy of Menander to survive in a near-complete format. Though it is a relatively early work, it does provide the foundation of which his later writings would originate from. The story takes place in the town of Phile in central Attica, focusing on two local families. Belonging to the wealthier clan is Sostratos, a well-meaning, if naive, city-dweller who happens across a beautiful maiden of a peasant household while hunting, and falls deeply in love with her. This encounter was arranged by the forest god Pan, who explains in the prologue how he was moved to pity for the girl, who is never given a name, thanks to her pious veneration of his woodland nymphs, but also due to her unfortunate position as the daughter of the elder Naaman, the eponymous bad-tempered man. Along with the maiden is her stepbrother, Gorgias, a hard-working and honorable farmer who came into Naaman's household vis-a-vis -vis the old man's marriage to his mother, but lived separately on his own plot of land, and never was formally adopted. As the title of the play suggests, Naaman is an abrasive and short-tempered fellow, prone to scaring off passerby with a torrent of verbal abuse and even acts of slapstick violence. Though this would seem to drive away any potential suitors, the love-struck Sestratos endeavors to win the fair maiden's heart by any means necessary, all the while juggling his family's responsibilities for a festival of Pan. To do this, he enlists the help of his friends and slaves from both households, who come up with schemes to try and gain Naaman's trust. These fail to varying degrees, but the climax of the story has Naaman accidentally tumble headfirst into a well. Sostratos and Gorgias work together to save the old man, who experiences something akin to a change of heart, giving Sostratus his blessing to marry his daughter and formally adopting Gorgias into his household. As a token of appreciation for the help, Sostratos convinces his family to offer his sister's hand in marriage to Gorgias. With both families now linked together, the play ends with all partaking in celebration, and even Naaman is begrudgingly dragged into the festivities. 
Though a rather terse summary of the Discolos, we are going to be able to draw upon it as a key reference as we move into the broader discussion of the themes and patterns of new comedy. Perhaps the single most important aspect of new comedy, and the works of Menander in particular, was its relatability. Numerous ancient authors emphasized Menander's skill at portraying the realities of everyday life, creating character archetypes that audiences could immediately recognize from their own experiences. Famously, the scholar Aristophanes of Byzantium quipped, O oh, Menander and life, which of you imitated the other? Theater was not intended just for the educated elite, as no doubt a mass of illiterate citizens happily flocked towards the stage when plays were put on for the public's enjoyment during festivals and special occasions. With the Macedonian conquests and the subsequent colonization efforts by the Hellenistic monarchs, the Greek world had greatly expanded as well, with theaters being established as far as Babylon and Bactria. It is unlikely, then, that a Greek soldier-settler in 3rd century Syria would grasp the full complexity of Aristophanes' context-heavy satires of 5th century Athenian politics and intellectual culture. The plots of Aristophanes tend to be rather fantastical as well. For example, The Birds is centered around the construction of Cloud Cuckoo Land, a city built into the skies with the assistance of birds, and the main character's literal ascension to divinity. Menander's stories are more grounded, no pun intended, and are based on scenarios that the audience could easily relate or connect to, albeit with comedic overtones. Unlike old comedy, one of the most noticeable differences is the absence of any lampooning of current events or public figures, but this might be explained by the political environment each was written in. Aristophanes and his contemporaries freely mocked the public figures of democratic Athens, for such actions were almost outright encouraged as civic participation. At the time of Menander's earliest compositions, Athens had fallen under the authority of Macedonia. Its failed attempts at a revolt in the Lemian War of 323-322 resulted in the dissolution of its democracy and the installation of the puppet ruler Demetrius of Phalerum in 317. Throughout the many wars fought by the successors of Alexander, Athens' survivals depended partially on its cooperation with the likes of the Hellenistic dynasties, such as the Antipatrids, Antigonids, and even the Ptolemies to some extent. Unsurprisingly, monarchies tend not to find open ridicule by its subjects to be particularly amusing, so a comedy that publicly bashed the local authorities, i.e. the king, would result in the responsible comedian's exile at best, and an execution at worst. Rather than using real-life persons as the basis of his plots, Menander would instead rely on stock characters. These are simplified character archetypes that act as a sort of narrative shortcut that audiences can recognize, either due to repeated exposure in their real life or through the consumption of media. Modern examples can include the mad scientist, the school bully, or the damsel in distress. If we are looking for a genre-specific example, there is the use of the white hat versus black hat cowboy in American westerns. By their very nature, stock characters tend not to be particularly complex in motive or personality, but the audience can immediately grasp the general traits that the presented character is meant to embody, allowing the playwright to focus more on setting up the humor and jokes rather than expositing over their backstory. One of the most popular in Menander's day was the braggart soldier a military man whose arrogance and bravado would inherently make him an attractive target of ridicule in the play, and professional soldiers could be found everywhere in the Hellenistic kingdoms. This later transformed into the Roman Miles Gloriosus, 
which exaggerated these characteristics even further. In addition to displaying personalities that are stereotypically associated with that particular role, these stock characters can be identified in other aspects. For instance, the dialogue can be written differently depending on their background. A peasant or lower class character might speak in a more crude or simple Greek dialect, while the educated elites are more poetic in their diction. Even their names are chosen to reflect their background. Military figures possessed monikers that were forceful or explicitly warlike, such as Polemon, Thrasonides, or Stratophanes. Meanwhile, the foreign-sounding names of Cirrus and Daos automatically designate the character's status as a slave. At first glance, these stock characters would seem prone to becoming stale or uninspired in their frequent appearances. Yet upon further investigation, it appears that Menander was skilled enough to defy audience expectations in the way that he approached these archetypes, such as by turning figures of mockery into deeply sympathetic characters and vice versa. In the Perikeromene, the girl with the shaven head, the main character Polemon is set up to be the stereotypical braggart soldier, a mercenary captain with a hot temper that causes him to violently chop off his wife's hair in an act of jealousy and in some circumstances he would be the villain of the story. Yet in the very first act, the manservant Sosias gives an extended monologue about the emotional anguish of Polemon, whose irrational treatment of the love of his life had left him wracked with guilt and regret, almost directly calling out the stereotype in the process. Quote, Our swaggering soldier, as he was just now, the man who won't let women keep their hair, is lying on a couch and weeps. I have just left them getting lunch prepared, and all his friends have gathered there to help him bear his grief more easily. By using these stock characters, Menander is able to move away from the more complex plots of old comedy, only to focus instead on drawing humor from the interactions and personal relationships of everyday people. As per these interactions, one of the most universal aspects of a Menandrian comedy is romance which usually takes center stage as the driving force behind the plot, or serves as a convenient narrative background. For a more direct example, the Discalos is structured almost entirely around Sostratus' attempts to win the approval of the elder Naimon to marry his daughter, with a double wedding at the end. In the Aspis, the Shield, a greedy uncle seeks to forcefully marry his niece to seize her large inheritance, only to be thwarted by her fiancé and the family slave with a wedding celebration taking place at the end as well. There are also scenarios brought about by less savory aspects of romance, such as through sexual assault, affairs, and spousal abuse, yet the tone of the work is intended to keep a light-hearted atmosphere in spite of more modern sensibilities. Ironically, the amount of actual romantic scenes between developing couples is almost non-existent. There are virtually no instances in the entirety of the Discalos where Sostratos and Nemon's daughter actually speak to one another. Sometimes Menander's characters are almost self-aware of the fairy tale-like romance that is often presented, and the inherent absurdity such a scenario would be in the real world. Returning to the Discalos, Sostratos's toady Chiraeus is baffled by the hasty desire for marriage to this peasant girl, based almost entirely on love at first sight. As per Chiraeus himself, this sort of impetuousness would be fine if Sostratus was choosing a hetaira or courtesan for a bit of fun and carnal pleasure. Marriage customs among Athenian nobles were far more rigorous, though. 
requiring an investigation into the partner's background and standing to even see if they could be considered as a candidate. This doesn't seem to bother the lovesick Sostratus, nor the rest of his family, and it takes little convincing to allow Gorgias to marry into their clan as well, which otherwise might get in the way of a good story. One of the biggest sources of comedy is the use of misunderstandings, where characters can fall in and out of trouble based on the lack of information or context. Probably the most clear-cut example is the plot of the Peri Keromene. In it, the young woman Glycera is kicked out of the house by her lover Polemon, who returned home from a military service only to discover Glycera in the arms of another man named Moschion, not before cutting her hair off in jealousy. Rather than an act of infidelity, the story reveals that Glycera was hugging Moschion because she knew he was her long-lost twin brother, though Moschion was not aware of this either and was actually in love with her before the revelation, leading the twins to find their birth father and with Polemon and Glycera reconciling. Returning to the notion that a comedy is effectively an inverse of tragedy, these revelations are the key to clearing up the misunderstanding that drives a play and ensuring a happy conclusion. Menander's writings are deeply colored by his attic background and his plays do reflect some of the sentiments of what life must have been like in the Athenian city and countryside, exemplified by the stock characters he relies on. One of these key themes is the differences in socioeconomic class. In the Discolos, the wealthy Sostratus's romantic pursuit of the poor peasant girl is a violation of the barriers that would normally divide Athenian rich and poor, leading to scenes which directly reflect on these differences. For example, the elderly Naaman is a unique specimen, a man who is not necessarily poor by circumstances, but rather by choice, and possesses the mentality of someone of that social group, at least according to Menander. The playwright has the slave Gitas make a dry observation about Naaman's attitude as being universally applicable to the Athenian peasant. Quote, what an unhappy man! What a life he leads! The Attic farmer in his purest form! Battle with rocks which bear nothing but sage and thyme, he reaps a crop of pain and gets no good from it. End quote. Gorgias, on the other hand, is the positive reflection of Naaman, a man forced into poverty by circumstance, yet is fundamentally proud and virtuous while also protective of his family. Even when presented with marriage to Sostratus's sister and the significant socioeconomic advancement that would follow, Gorgias is hesitant on the matter believing that hard work is what makes a man, not luxury. These sorts of moral observations can offer a degree of philosophical introspection, but such questions are primarily designed to elicit humorous situations. Given the theme of class differences, one of the running gags of the Discolos is the overall subversion of social norms and customs. In his attempt to win Naaman's trust, the blue-blooded Sostratos is convinced by Gorgias and the slave Daos to hide his background by casting aside his expensive cloak and to work in the fields alongside them. Gorgias is sincere in his advice, but Daos confesses to the audience about his hope that a single day's worth of back-breaking labor will be enough to make the young aristocrat give up and leave them alone. Sostratos views it as something of a Heraclean task as well, 
proclaiming that he would die today or marry her and live. Ironically, the only thing he ends up with for his efforts is a bad sunburn and a sore back, but it does clearly demonstrate that Sostratus' intentions are pure, which wins Gorgias' respect. The conflict driving the story is also subject to this inversion. In most circumstances, the issue would arise between Sostratos and his father Callipides for trying to take a poor woman as a wife, but yet it is the poor Naaman who objects, in spite of the obvious financial benefit that would accompany such an arrangement. There are other archetypes that specifically target the careers of the lower class, with one of the common ones being the professional cook, who straddles between the worlds of both rich and poor. In the Discolos, Sikon the cook is demonstrated to be someone who grossly overestimates his own abilities, a lowbrow who prepares luxurious foods for the wealthy, which inflates his own sense of self-importance. After spending an entire monologue bragging about his people skills and mocking the failure of Gitas, the slave, to speak with Naaman, Sikon immediately botches this greeting, and is nearly whipped by the old man for his troubles, only to double down on his delusional self-confidence. The role of slaves in Menander's work is something to be considered as well, for they often take up a disproportionate amount of onstage time. Slaves in Menander's plays are usually characterized as one of two types. The first is the clever slave, a crafty yet often heroic individual who can formulate plans and actions necessary to help their master's goals come to fruition, while the other is the lazy or stupid slave. Of the two, the clever slave is given the most attention, and the plot of the Aspis, the shield, presents the most developed example of the clever slave as a force of good. In it, the old slave Daos returns to Athens after a military campaign in Lycia, believing his master Cleostratos was killed in battle. Accompanying him was the large amount of plunder taken by Cleostratos, to be inherited by his sister as next of kin. Their greedy uncle Smyrkines hopes to take it as his own by forcing marriage upon his niece, who was already betrothed to another man. To prevent a dishonor to his master's family and memory, Daos comes up with several schemes to trick Smyrkines, such as faking the deaths of other characters and providing advice on the best course of action. The play resolves itself after it is revealed that Cleostratos was indeed alive, and Smyrkines was punished by Daos in some sort of manner. With regards to his treatment of slavery, Menander articulates the typical point of view of an Athenian aristocrat and Greco-Roman society at large. Slaves are characters who are structured around the whim of their masters. Good slaves align with the interests of their owners, bad slaves are lazy and self-interested. Slave hierarchies may be found within the households presented in these plays. Those given domestic responsibilities, such as tutors or nursemaids, tend to be better presented than those assigned to manual labor, like charcoal burners. Parallels may be drawn to the depiction of enslaved African Americans in minstrel shows that were popular in the United States during the 19th and early 20th centuries, perhaps showing a idealized slave existence. Admittedly, there does appear to be a degree of sympathy expressed towards the enslaved within the plays of Menander. In the Discolos, the slaves of Gorgias and Naaman seem to have been viewed as members of the extended family and are not subject to the slapstick violence one might expect. By contrast, the slaves of Sostratus' household are treated as the butt of the joke. It is unclear if the differences in the treatments of slaves in rich and poor households is meant to be taken literally, or whether it is intended to make a humorous contrast. 
In one passage, a servant grumbles about the irony of Sistratus's family performing the rites to Pan, when it is he that does all the work. Quote, what is this? Do you think I've sixty hands? It's I blow the charcoal, fly around and bring the offal, wash and cut it up, and make the cakes, and carry around the pots, although I'm blinded by the smoke. They think I'm just the donkey at the festival. End quote. Given the rather diminished position of women in Athenian society, it is unsurprising then that Menander's female characters tend to be limited in their overall complexity. We get relatively little in the way of characterization or agency, oftentimes being reduced to only a few spoken lines in the entirety of the play. Menander does explore the roles of both upper and lower class women, though primarily as victims of some variety. Mistaken identity is a common plot thread associated with women. A protagonist might fall in love with a woman whose low status usually requires some sort of revelation, such as the reveal of a legitimate father, to restore the status of the girl in question. In the Pericheromene, the humiliated Glycera is able to regain her dignity after the discovery of her long-lost father, thus allowing her and her reconciled lover, Polemon, to be formally married under Greek law. In the Mizumenos, the man she hated, a Cypriot woman named Cratea refuses to marry her mercenary captor Thrasonides after she believes her killed her brother on a raid, but the arrival of her father and the sudden return of her seemingly dead brother changes her mind and she accepts the betrothal with her family's permission. We do find that women are often portrayed as the most virtuous characters in the story. Perhaps this might be a consequence of their lack of relative power. The errors and mistakes of men, whose actions would affect the entire household, are inherently easier to craft the stories around. After the death of Menander, other playwrights would soon follow in his wake, including the likes of Posidippus of Cassandrea and Apollodorus of Charistus, but Menander was by far the most successful of the new comedians. His plays would circulate around the Hellenistic world for the next 150 years, before finding their most appreciative audience, the Romans. It would not be too much of an exaggeration to suggest that Roman comedy is almost entirely derived from Menander and the New Comedy movement, with the Romans themselves being the first to admit it. Roman comedy makes its first appearance in the early to mid-2nd century BC, with the playwrights Plautus and Terence producing the first comedies in Latin. In addition to directly translating the original Greek works into Latin, both playwrights adapted Menander for a Roman audience in their own version of the stories. One tradition even suggests that Terence was lost at sea on his return from Greece after purchasing the entirety of Menander's corpus to bring back to Rome. For almost a thousand years, from the early Hellenistic period to the end of the Western Roman Empire, Menander's works were overwhelmingly the most popular form of comedic writing, with Aristophanes considered worth studying only by curious antiquarians. The nearly 900 noted quotations of Menander's works by various ancient authors are a testament to his universal appeal. The biographer Plutarch wrote high praises of both Menander and Aristophanes, but considered the Hellenistic poet the superior craftsman. Aristophanes' wit was seen as too vulgar and vicious for Plutarch's moralist tendencies. Many wealthy Romans adorned their living spaces with works of art containing images from his plays and of the man himself. In the ruins of Pompeii, a home known as the House of Menander is named as such due to the presence of a large wall fresco that shows the playwright seated with a scroll bearing his name. 
while another had mosaics of actors in theatrical masks reenacting scenes from Women at Breakfast and The Girl Possessed by the Gods. Among the playwrights, philosophers, and other intellectual giants depicted in Greco-Roman art, Menander might hold the distinction of possessing the most surviving portraits in antiquity. Educated aristocrats could spend their time drafting personal works based on Menander's model, such as Pliny the Younger. Yet by the modern day, Aristophanes has firmly entrenched himself as the comedy playwright par excellence of the Greco-Roman world, and Menander's extensive literary output has survived only in papyrus fragments discovered within the last century. What led to this change in fortunes? It seems rather contradictory to imagine that an author with such a sizable corpus of works that remained popular for a millennia would not survive the test of time, but we have been largely bereft of Menander's plays until relatively recently. True, the spirit of Menander's work was carried over from the likes of Plautus and Terence, but learned Romans confessed that they were not of the same caliber. Julius Caesar is said to have respectfully referred to Terence as a half-Menander, acknowledging that his adaptations lacked the same force as the Greek originals. Perhaps it could be explained by a change in tastes. If we are to believe that Aristophanes' reliance on contemporary political figures and events made them difficult to relate to for an average theatergoer, this may have worked for them in the other direction. Educated an elite in the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire might have viewed Aristophanes as the more prestigious of the two to study, since his plays required a familiarity with Athenian politics and philosophy of the 5th century BC, which would make the reader appear more learned. In terms of language, Aristophanes' use of the classical Attic Greek was likely seen as more refined than the koine that was becoming commonplace by Menander's day. These Byzantine scholars would be the ones to preserve the Greek playwrights, while those in the Latin-speaking West stood by Plautus and Terence as their preferred authors, making the transmission of Menander's original works even less likely when they had the condensed Roman adaptations. The vast majority of Menander's surviving works have come from Egypt, with recovered papyri in various states of preservation that have really only brought him to light in the 20th century. Archaeologists working in Cairo made the first significant find in 1905, a 5th century collection of papyri which contained large portions of three Menandrian plays, The Arbitration, The Samia, and The Girl with the Shaven Head. Nearly 50 years later, a codex originating from a small Coptic community near Dishna produced the first complete play, The Discolos, bundled among various biblical texts and a few chapters of Homer, along with other significant fragments. While scholars have been eagerly awaiting to get their hands on the supposed genius of Menander for centuries, their reactions are not always so kind. To some, new comedy was a dumbed-down entertainment for the masses, the ancient equivalent of a soap opera, where only the most banal plots and characters were presented when compared to the biting satire of Aristophanes' The Wasps or the Clouds. In spite of this initial backlash, an appreciation for Menander's works has developed over the years, and perhaps one day he will regain something of his former status. For those who are visual learners and are interested in finding out more, I strongly recommend the 1966 film version of the Broadway musical a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, starring Zero Mostel. Though it is an adaptation of the plays of Plautus, the spirit of Menander's works are very much present, and it provides an excellent introduction for those looking to delve further in the origins of modern comedy.